Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're glad you're here today. We're going to have a great, great morning together. If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of 2 Timothy and chapter number 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you. You could grab that Bible, turn in the back part to page 167, and you would be at 2 Timothy 4. Matt Proctor tells part of the story of William Lane. William Lane was a very noted New Testament scholar who at one point in his career taught at Western Kentucky University. And one of the students he had at Western Kentucky was a gentleman by the name of Michael Card. Many of you would recognize him as a contemporary Christian musician. And even though he was a student to uh, Dr. Lane, they became friends, and it really developed into a discipling relationship. Michael Card would say that he learned how to study Scripture, how to treat his wife, how to serve the church, how to love God by watching Dr. William Lane. Of course, eventually, Michael graduated, and later on, Dr. Lane moved to another institution, but they stayed in touch. Now, fast forward to many years later, and Professor Lane was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the Lanes decided that they were going to move to Franklin, Tennessee, which is where Michael Card and his family lived. And one day a phone call came to Michael Card. It was Dr. Lane. And this is what he said to Michael on the phone. I want to come to Franklin. I want to show you how a Christian man dies. And indeed, they moved to Franklin. And a number of months later, Card's beloved friend and mentor died, but he left behind a powerful lesson on finishing well. And that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about focusing on finishing well in our life race. And you know what's interesting about finishing well is that finishing well is actually more important than starting well. And really, when we talk about running the race of our life, it's, it's the picture of a long-distance race. And all of us have known people. They are people who started well when it came to running the Christian life. But somewhere along the race path, they took their eyes off of the Savior. Maybe it was the appeal of the world to them. Maybe it was hard circumstances that they faced. Maybe it was becoming entangled in a pursuit of money or a pursuit of sex, but somehow, even though they started well, they drifted off course. And before the end of his letter, Paul is going to mention an example of that in this book. When we talk about focusing on finishing well, I find tremendous encouragement from the scriptures. See, what I find when I look in the Bible is that some who finished strong previously had fallen into sexual immorality in their life, and yet they finished strong. Rahab would be an example of that. 
I look into the Bible, it's so encouraging to see someone who at their midpoint of their life was basically considered a failure, and yet they finished well, and Moses would be an example of that. I find it encouraging to look into the Bible and see individuals who were finding their life just mired in hard circumstances that were really not of their own making, and yet they finished well. And the Apostle Paul is an example of that, even as he writes this book. And I find encouragement because I look into the Bible and I see people who overcame great personal failure, really tremendously disappointing personal failure, and yet they finished well. And Peter would be an example of that. So there's great encouragement for us to be found in the Word of God. We've been involved in a series of messages on the book of 2 Timothy that we've titled Traction, Maintaining Spiritual Traction in a Shifting Culture. And as we close the book out, we've been looking at a last day's survival guide that I believe Paul lays out for us. If we're going to survive the last days when things go from bad to worse, there are four things that he say, says in this section that will help us. The first thing, if we want to survive in the last days, is we need to learn from a consistent godly example. We saw that in chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. Secondly, if we're going to survive the last days, we should nourish our life and others with Scripture. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 14, and uh, chapter 4 and verse 4 through that section. Today we're going to look at the third element in the last day's survival guide, and that is if we're going to survive the last days, we should focus on finishing well. And we see that in chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. And I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read from chapter 4, verse 5 down through verse 8. Paul writes to Timothy, and he's writing to us, and he says, But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. How do we survive in the last days? Well, one thing we do is focus on finishing well. And I have laid out an outline of these verses and we want to take a look at that now. Number one, we're going to see Paul's directives in verse 5. And we're going to see four directives that he lays out. Then we're going to look at Paul's reality in verse 6. It's a reality that all of us, every one of us who are breathing will face one day. And then we're going to see Paul's reflection in verse 7, Paul's confidence in verse 8. And then we're going to close our time today by looking at the pivotal key to finishing well. So that's where we're going. Let's get started. And as we get started, I want to back up a couple of verses in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to verses 3 and 4. He warns us that a time is going to come in the future 
when people will not endure sound doctrine, healthy teaching, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's where the culture is moving. That's where the people that we live and work with are headed. Even inside the church, some will be like that. But then I want you to notice verse 5. He says, by way of contrast, but you. And that in the original is that little phrase, sude, S-U-D-E. Three times in 14 verses, he uses this phrase. He says, this is where everything is going, but you, by way of contrast, should be different. And he says it again here. They're going to start piling up these teachers in accordance with their own desires. They're going to turn their, A's, or their ears rather away from truth and will turn aside to myth. But you should be different as followers of Jesus. In other words, he's saying, by way of contrast, don't get sucked into where they're going. Don't be just like them. And then he gives four rapid-fire directives that are vital to finishing well. And that's what we want to do. So let's look at these four rapid-fire directives. Verse 5, he says, But you be sober in all things. The New Living Translation translates it, keep a clear mind. Now, when he says be sober in all things, he's not saying, well, you know, don't drink alcoholic beverages. He's saying, basically, we need to have a clear head with everything that's going on in the culture. We need to be vigilant. We need to be aware of what's going on inside the culture. In other words, we need to keep our discernment up. We need to be alert to temptation. We need to be aware of our own weaknesses and tendencies. You ever think about that? Where are you weak? Where are you more prone to get off course as you run your race? We need to keep our discernment up. We need to resist the pressure of the culture that wants to push us in a direction. We need to resist the pressure of people that want us to be just like them. And if anyone, if anyone in this universe should be aware of the current of the culture, where it's trying to push us, where it is taking us as a culture, it ought to be the followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, we ought to be the ones who would go, yeah, I see what's happening. It fits in with what the Bible has to say. Uh, let your eyes go back to chapter 3 for a moment, verses 2 to 5. We have a description given to us of where the world is going, where the current of the culture is headed. It says, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. They'll be ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. They'll be brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 
holding to a form of godliness. There's this mirage of godliness they have, although they have denied its power. That's where the culture is going, and we need to be aware of the current that wants to push us along in that direction. Because the culture is out to bend morals. I find it fascinating. I mean, we live in a college community with a lot of young people, and I, and I find this as I speak at family life marriage conferences. It's fascinating to me how many followers, confessed followers of Jesus Christ, live together. Where did they get that from? That's where the current of the culture is pushing us. And we need to be sober in all things. We need to be alert. We need to keep our discernment up. The culture is just more and more every year chasing after money and chasing after pleasure. We need to be aware that's where the culture's current wants to push us. We saw that description here in chapter 3 as we read through those verses just a moment ago, how people will be lovers of self. I mean, how else? How else can you explain people who would loot and cheat storm victims other than they're just lovers of self? You see, that's where the culture is pushing us, and we need to be clear-minded about that. We need to be sober in all things. And then he goes on to say, second, rapid-fire directive, endure hardship. We need to be sober in all things. We need to endure hardship if we're going to finish well. And I want you to know, just let your eyes rest on those two or three words there, endure hardship. You know, that's not an empty motto or a trite slogan that he delivers here. But it's reality if we're going to finish well. You know, we all have a course to run that has providentially been chosen by God. And what's interesting about the course of life that we have been chosen to run is you don't get to select the course. It has been prepared by God for us to run. And the courses are not all the same. The life course that God has chosen for some of us been marked by different things. Some of us have a life course that has been marked by cancer. I would be one of those. Some of us have a life course that's marked by a killer tornado or the loss of a child. Some of us have a course that is marked by an unwanted divorce or a job layoff or an unwanted move or an addiction. Some of us have a course that is marked by the rebellion of a child or an aneurysm or a stroke or dementia or an autoimmune disease. Some of us have a life course that's been marked by a major financial setback, the betrayal of a friend, perhaps rape, perhaps robbery, Some of us have a life course that is marked by a special needs child or a suicide in our family or rejection for a spiritual stand that we took. You don't get to select the course. 
It's providentially given to us by the God of the universe. But all of our courses, all of our life courses, no matter what they may be, may be have all been marked with hardship. The choice we have is not the course we're going to run. The choice is how we're going to run the course. Our choice is, are we going to run it by faith? Are we going to run it in reliance on his power, remembering that God will provide the grace for whatever place he may put us into? Whatever it may be that goes on in our life, his grace will be there for us. His grace is sufficient, is what Paul said in another place. When he says endure hardship, it's not an empty motto, it's not a trite slogan. It comes from one whose track record of a life course rivals anyone's who's ever lived. You know, you can go back and you can look at his life course in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28. You ought to go, go read that and then ask yourself the question with the things that you maybe have been through. Would you be willing to switch life courses with Paul? And, and even as he, he writes this, endure hardship, he's writing from a dungeon with death lurking before him. If we're going to finish well, he says, be sober in all things, endure hardship. And then thirdly, he says in verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. That word that's translated evangelist just means literally a proclaimer of good news. Do the work of being a proclaimer of good news. Why is that necessary? Because people are perishing. The people, we we're reminded of this when a storm comes that people are perishing, but the truth is that people are perishing every day of every week of every month of every year. The people that you work near are in the process of perishing. The neighbors who live near you are in the process of perishing. People are being swept along by sin and selfishness. But the truth is, this is the exciting part, every person that you work with, that you live near, everyone has a God-shaped vacuum on the inside that can only be filled by the person of Jesus Christ, the living God himself. If we're going to finish well, he says, do the work of an evangelist. Look for the opportunity to share good news with people. Take the opportunities as they're there to share the good news with people. And sometimes it's interesting, our emotional response, because we hear those words, do the work of an evangelist, be a proclaimer of good news, and we think, oh, do I have to do that? You see, it's not a have to, it's a get to. We get to actually, potentially, introduce people to their heavenly Father. That's pretty exciting. We have the opportunity to perhaps introduce them to our best friend, Jesus Christ himself, that he might become their best friend, and he is a great friend. Do the work of an evangelist. Now, I think there's one thing that we need that's so vital if we're going to do the work of an evangelist. It's a word that begins with the letter B, and that is the word boldness. Just because of the pressure of the world and the pressure of the enemy and the 
the pressure of sometimes maybe being rejected, we just hold back. And even the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, 19 said, would you pray for me as I do the work of an evangelist that I would have boldness to speak? In his autobiography, Billy Graham, that autobiography is entitled Just As I Am, he tells of being on a golf outing with President John F. Kennedy. And those of you who are younger may not know, but John F. Kennedy uh, came out of a Catholic background. And so they're playing golf together, and John Kennedy turns to Dr. Graham and says to him, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? And Billy said, I most certainly do. And then President Kennedy said to him, does my church believe it? And Dr. Graham said, yeah, it's in the Catholic Church creeds, to which President Kennedy immediately said, well, they don't preach it. They don't tell us much about it. I'd like to know, Billy, what you think about that. So there they are on the golf course, and Billy is explaining the Bible and about Christ's return. And after he'd done that for a while, President Kennedy said, that's very interesting. We'll have to talk more about that someday. Well, the last time Billy Graham says that he was with Kennedy was at the 1963 National Prayer Breakfast. And Billy Graham said, I had the flu. And after we both gave our talks, we walked out of the hotel to the president's car together. And at the curb, he said, President Kennedy turned to me and said, Billy, could you ride back to the White House with me? I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes. Billy Graham replied, Mr. President, I've got a fever, and I don't want to give you this thing. Couldn't we wait and talk some other time? I mean, it was a cold and snowy day, and Billy Graham says, I was freezing as I stood there without my overcoat. And President Kennedy replied graciously, of course. Then came November 22nd, 1963. Billy Graham never saw President Kennedy alive again. And reflecting back on that, this is what Billy Graham says. My hesitation at the car door with Kennedy's request haunts me still. What was on his mind? Should I have gone with him? It was an irrecoverable moment. If we're going to do the work of an evangelist, we need some boldness. And let me ask you this question. Even as we're speaking right now, could it be that the Holy Spirit has been identifying someone in your mind that you know he would have you share more information with about life and death and Jesus Christ? Could it be there's somebody that the Holy Spirit's prompting you and saying, you know what, you need to go ask them a question about spiritual things. Or maybe you need to share your spiritual story with them. If we're going to finish well, we must be sober in all things, we must endure hardship, we must do the work of an evangelist. And then in verse five, the fourth 
rapid-fire directive he gives is fulfill your ministry. The New Living Translation translates it, complete the ministry God has given you. Now, this is not just for pastors. This is not just for elders. This is not just for church leaders. If you've been around Wildwood for a while, you'll know that we say the Bible clearly teaches that all of us are in the ministry and all of us have a ministry. All of us are called to serve the needs of people. Their spiritual needs, their physical needs, their emotional needs. It's been so encouraging to see so many people mobilized in the face of a storm. It's been a great illustration of that. All of us have a ministry. And all of us have been shaped by God providentially and supernaturally and sovereignly to serve him and to serve other people. We like to use this acronym SHAPE to emphasize this. The S stands for spiritual gifts. Every one of us who know Christ have received a spiritual gift. The H stands for our heart passion. What really motivates us? What makes our heart beat when it comes to other people? The A stands for our, our abilities, every ability we have has been given to us by God. The P stands for our personality. God wove your personality a certain way because he wants you to serve other people. And then the E stands for experience. Every experience, every experience we've ever been through, God uses to shape us for ministry. And Paul says to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. And by the way, Timothy's ministry was not exactly like Paul's. And Bruce's ministry is not exactly like yours. We're going to see as we conclude this, Lord willing, next week. Paul mentions in verses 9 and following 15 other people who were ministering in some way. And it stresses the fact that no ministry is too small. No ministry is unimportant. And when you see people even being mobilized to meet the needs of storm victims, you get the idea. Everybody's playing all these different roles. And that's the way ministry is. And so don't underestimate how God wants to use you. Now let me ask you this question. Right now, freeze frame, time, space, history. Are you serving him right now? See, it is a vital part of finishing well. As we said, we were going to look at Paul's directives. Secondly, we were going to look at Paul's reality. We see it in verse 6. Go there. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. The reality that he was facing there in verse 6, one day is going to be reality for each one of us. I don't care how young you may be. And what he uses here are some very vivid word pictures. First he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. What was a drink offering? Well, there were provisions in the Old Testament law for drink offerings. It was one way to make an offering to the Lord. But if you actually track it back, it dates back before the law, all the way back to Jacob in Genesis 35, 15. And what they would do with a drink offering is they would have red wine in a container, and they would pour that red wine out on the ground as a sacrifice to the Lord. 
And later on, when the law talked about a lot of different offerings that could be made, the drink offering was usually the last in a series of sacrifices that you would make. Now, isn't that an interesting picture? As Paul is coming to the very end of his life course, and he says, I'm already in the process of being poured out as a drink offering. And in reality, if you think of that red wine picturing our own life blood, we're all in the process of pouring out our life blood. Come July, I, I will have been here for 34 years. I love this state. And I love the people here. And I've always had the perspective that spending all those years here is simply more than anything else an act of worship to the living God where I'm pouring out my lifeblood on this soil with this people. I'm already, he says, in the process of being poured out as a drink offering. And then there's another picturesque phrase. He says, the time of my departure has come. He's seeing death on the horizon. And the word that is translated departure is a very picturesque word. It's a word that was used of a ship that would weigh anchor and then the winds would carry that ship to a new destination. And basically what he's saying is that's what's happening to me. The time of my departure has come. I'm beginning to weigh anchor and the winds are going to carry me on a journey right into the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the cool thing you see about being a follower of Jesus and death. In death, a believer doesn't leave home. A believer goes home. And the ship moves right to our future permanent home. The word departure was used in another sense. It would be used of when you had a tent set up and you would strike the tent and you would pull up the stakes. It's interesting that Paul describes our bodies that we have during this life as an earth tent. And he's basically saying the time of my departure has come. I'm basically getting ready to pull up the stakes of my earth tent. I'm getting ready to leave the land of the dying and to go to the land of the, the living. Now, this is great perspective on death. See, for a follower of Jesus Christ, death is not a period. It's just a comma because the best is yet to come. And as Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 23, to depart, same terminology, and to be with Christ, he says, is very much better than being here. Now, the third thing we see in verse 7 is Paul's reflection. Look at it with me, please. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now, in the original language that the New Testament was written in, most frequently the verbs come at the front part of the sentence. It's a little different than English. When you begin to play with word order, you're doing so for the sake of emphasis. And that's literally what he does here in the original language. He reverses the normal word order. 
He says, literally, the good fight I have fought. And it's been a hard fight. It's been an exhausting fight. And just like us, there are times when Paul was on the verge of giving up. But he kept thinking about finishing well. He says, the course I have finished. He'd been running a spiritual marathon for three decades. And remember, every course, whatever our life course may be, it's going to have its twists, it's going to have its turns, it's going to have its steep hills that we must go up. Remember, we don't get to select what the course is going to look like. It's a God thing, providential thing. And not only that, we don't get to select what the course looks like, but we don't get to select the length of the course. My friend Craig, his course ended at the age of 24 when he rolled his car in a car wreck. My friend Todd, his life course ended at the age of 35 due to cancer in his life. My good friend Stu, his life course ended at the age of 57 after battling multiple myeloma for many years. We don't get to choose the course, we don't even get to choose the length of the course, but we have been given by God a course to run. And not only that, but a baton to hand off to other people. See, that's why we build into even our babies here at Wildwood. That's why we build into our children at Wildwood. That's why we build into our students at Wildwood, because we're handing off a baton. We never know when the course could be up. And then he says, in verse 7, the faith I have kept, I've held to the truth, I've lived the truth, never perfectly, no one ever does. I've defended the truth. And there's just a sense of satisfaction when you approach the finish line and we can make those statements. Then I want you to see in verse 8 Paul's confidence. Look at verse 8. He says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, aren't you glad it says that, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There is a crown of righteousness, he says, that is laid up for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. In the, in the original language of the New Testament, there are two words for crowns. One word refers to a, what we might call a ruling crown. Another term, which is the term used here, refers to a laurel wreath that would be awarded in the Olympic Games. It is a victor crown. In the future, there is laid up for me the victor crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. In the New Testament, there are several crowns mentioned. One of them is the crown of life. We see that mentioned in James 1, 2, and Revelation 2, 10. It's a crown that is awarded as a victor's crown for enduring suffering. Have you endured some suffering? 
And then we have the crown of glory that's mentioned in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, a crown, a victor's crown that is awarded for shepherding other people spiritually. And then we have mentioned here the crown of righteousness. And I'm so grateful that he says the Lord is going to award it to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The New Living Translation puts it, all who eagerly look forward to his glorious return. You see, men and women, here's the way, the the truth about the return of Christ is designed for us to use it as a motivation to live our life righteously and faithfully. The fact that he's going to return in all this power and glory should make a difference in how we live our life. I want you to jot down some passages. You can look them up later. You should read them and reflect on them. They're passages on the fact that Jesus is coming again. We see it in Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. Chapter 25, verses 31 to 34. We see it in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. We see this description of his return in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. We are to be embracing all of that because it's a motivation to live differently, to live righteously and faithfully. Now, scholars disagree a little bit. Some scholars say that these crowns are literal crowns. Some would say they're not really literal crowns. They're just a picture of of reward and commendation that could be given to us from Jesus. But I find it interesting that in Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, we see there the 24 elders who are in heaven, and many scholars believe that's a picture of the church, are casting their crowns at the feet of Jesus. You you see, that tells me that a crown, a victor's crown, is not about, look at me, I'm saying, hey, look at me. Look what I got on my head. You have as many on my head and your head as I have in my head? I mean, that's not the idea. The idea is that the crown gives us an opportunity to praise Jesus Christ, to praise him for his grace in my life, to praise him for how he worked in me. Sometimes people say to me, you know, what's the secret to staying at the same church and being there for, for like 34 years? And I'm, I'm going to tell you, there, there's really not a secret other than God. You know, God working. And I know when I get to heaven, it's just going to be so apparent, more apparent than it even is now. It's his grace that was working in me. His grace empowering and leading and guiding We said we were going to do several things today. We want to look at Paul's directives in verse 5, Paul's reality in verse 6. That's a reality that we'll all have one day. His reflection in verse 7 and his confidence in verse 8. But we said there was one final thing we were going to do. And that is we want to look at the pivotal key when it comes to finishing well. And that pivotal key is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to put the verse up on the screen. Men and women, this is the pivotal key to finishing well. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's the course that God has given to each one of us. But here's the key phrase. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Do you know that Oklahoma City, it's pretty amazing for our area, has become one of the premier centers of competitive 
rowing in the United States of America. You know what I'm talking about when I talk about rowing? I'm talking about the rowing teams that are in those shells, and they're doing the synchronized rowing together. And what is really interesting is they're just really, in in one sense, regular people like us. And while they're rowing, think about this, they're rowing with their backs to the finish line. And, 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 you know, you see that picture there. It's just like all of us, regular kind of people. And this is like our life race, and we're rowing, and we really have our backs to the finish line. We don't know exactly where the finish line is. Where's the finish line going to be for your life race, my life race? See, there's a lot of parallel with the way we live our lives. So how are you going to finish strong? How do you row an effective race? Well, what they do is they focus on the coxswain. You know, the coxswain is the guy who is sitting on the end of the boat. And as they are rowing and they're running their race, they're rowing with their backs to the finish line. But they're facing the coxswain. And the coxswain is the one who knows where the finish line is. And it is critical if you want to run the race well and finish strong that you look to the coxswain, that you listen to the coxswain, that you obey the commands of the coxswain, that you let the coxswain coach you to the finish. And you have to trust the coxswain to bring you across the finish line in the strongest possible way. You see, it's the coxswain is the one who enables that crew to finish well. And that's what Jesus Christ is for us. He's our coxswain. And if we're going to finish well, we need to look to him. We need to listen to him. We need to obey his commands. We need to let him coach us to the finish line. We need to trust him to lead us to finish in the strongest possible way for his glory, and for his honor. Now, as we close, I simply want to say this, and I think this is encouragement for all of us. Because sometime at this point, we're, we're maybe even thinking about some regrets that we may have. I simply want to say this. It's never too late to start living right. It's never too late. It's never too late to aim at finishing well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this truth from the Word of God. Hundreds of years ago, centuries ago, these words were written to Timothy. And they're just as relevant as they were the day they were written because these are the words of God. And Father, the the last days mean a lot of different things. The current of the culture is going to be pushing us, pressuring us. May we remember that if we're going to survive, one thing we must do is focus on finishing well. And we would pray that we would keep our eyes riveted on the coxswain who wants to coach us all the way in to the finish which will give him great pleasure 
and glory, even if we have to limp across the line. We would pray, we would honor you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we close today, we're going to do something very, very special. We've got three teams of people who are headed as an expression of fulfilling their ministry and doing the work of an evangelist. We have a group going to, if they'll come on down through the, the center aisle, a group going to Nicaragua, and they're leaving just, ver- where, where does the Nicaraguan group leave? Tomorrow morning, okay. And then we have the group that is going to Latvia for the orphan camp, and we're leaving a week from Tuesday. And then we have a group that is going to Brazil. And I'm going to ask everybody, if you could maybe get two by two down the aisle. These are the people who are going to Nicaragua and to Brazil and to Latvia. And we go two by two because we're going to ask you actually all to pray for them. And we want you to just literally feel free, if you're near them, to maybe go beside them, put your hand on them, and just to pray with them. You can pray out loud. It's okay. And uh, pray silently, whatever fits. But we're going to just take a moment for the people of Wildwood to actually get up. So if you have to cross some people to come out, we want you to do that right now. Please come on out and pray for these individuals, including myself, as they go as an expression of fulfilling their ministry and doing the work of an evangelist in the next couple of days and weeks. So let's just pray. I'll close in prayer. Go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for every one of these individuals who've made a commitment of their time and their finances to go and serve you in Nicaragua and Latvia and Brazil. We thank you for those who've helped to provide financially for them to be able to do this. We would pray that you would protect everyone in their travels that there wouldn't be major plane issues, lost luggage, other twists and turns. We pray that you would protect everyone's health, that we wouldn't be getting sick, run down on a trip such as this. And then we pray, Father, for every individual who is going, that they might truly see themselves as representing Jesus Christ, to share Christ's heart and love with people, to serve them, and to be able to just share as much as they have opportunity the life-giving message that there is a real God and his name is Jesus Christ. And Father, we would pray that you would accomplish a lot of great mission objectives, that everyone would be a little bit changed at the very least from a trip like this. And we pray, Father, that really everyone in our body might have that opportunity to, to one day go and serve in a special way in a place that's so different from home. We would pray you would do great things, that you would plant seeds that would bear great fruit, and that ultimately significant life change can be affected, and that the ripple effect would not only affect everyone that they meet, but even future people that they will never meet because of how great you are. We want you to do great things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to thank you all for being here today. If you're here today and you'd love to have someone pray with you about an issue, we encourage you to come up here afterwards. We have some folks who'd be happy to pray with you. Thank you for being here. Have a great 
great week. You are dismissed. <laughs>